Well, we've been marching through the book of Acts, and uh, we've come to Acts chapter 19. And the good news is that we're not going to read every word here. We'll just be going through and learning and teaching and gathering some things for ourselves here. Acts chapter 19, titled today, More Than Anything Else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a great blessing to be in church. What a blessing to know you personally. And how great it is, Lord, that you listen to us and you teach us and you guide us. We want that today, Lord. Give us the ability to learn and to grow, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's been a long, long time since I've been to to Disneyland in California, but I'm guessing that the Autopia cars are still there in some form. You know the Autopia cars? They have lots of heads saying yes. The uh, Autopia cars were were very small, and I guess still are, uh, simple, safe, slow versions of real automobiles for kids. And they had real gas pedals and steering wheels, but the track was hemmed by curbs and and bumpers, so nobody ever got hurt. My very young daughter, Caroline, had a wonderful time driving those cars when she was, was, uh, was just a small girl there. And she was very impressed and loved that she could actually drive a car with a gas pedal and a real steering wheel. Well, shortly after we exi- uh, exited the Autopia area and, uh, and went to Mr. Toad's wild ride, it kind of changed. It was, uh, it was inside a, a sort of a dark building, and it, uh, it too had some open cars that were moving fast and slow and jerking and dodging and made-up pretending uh, obstacles were there that you had to go around in dangerous situations. And it simulated a wild ride, and it was very fun. And my daughter never caught on that she wasn't actually driving the Mr. Toad wild ride like she had been driving at the Autopia. Caroline uh, says these days, she was 18 years old when she was thinking about how fun that ride was, And it dawned on her for the first time that she probably wasn't not driving that car herself. (laughs) At the time, she was having so much fun that none of her older brothers had the heart to tell her that she wasn't the one successfully navigating around all those obstacles on on Mr. Toad's wild ride. Far back in the day, if if you were one of the apostles of Jesus, the name, uh, and namely the apostle uh, uh, Paul, You were riding the real version of a wild ride. You had to really hang on when Paul was at the wheel and pushing hard on the accelerator because he was going all out and anything could happen when you were with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul at one time was a hater. More particularly, he was a hater of Christians. And when after the death and resurrection of Jesus... And when the apostles of Jesus were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus, Paul, at that time known as Saul of Tarsus, 
cheered all those who despised the Christians. And when the godly man Stephen, a bold Christian who spoke out about Jesus, was stoned to death, Saul was in the front row watching it, and he approved the killing, the murder of Stephen. And Saul continued to encourage the persecution. The scripture tells us in Acts 9-1 that he was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Acts 9, 1 and 2 tells us that he, Paul, went to the high priest and he asked letters for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, you know what the way was? The the way then was the the name of the Christian fellowship at that time. I could go into that as how cool that, that name was, but I'll skip that for the times for now. He went along to the way, the the way being the name of the fellowship. Whether men or women, Saul would take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. But God in his infinite mercy took pity on Saul and brought Saul to his knees and made him blind. But then later the Lord spoke to Saul and healed his blindness. And Saul got up and was baptized and ate food and he regained his strength, the scriptures tell us here in Acts Acts 9.20 tells us that at once he, Saul, began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. It was a tremendous turnaround. So can God change lives for the good? Yes. Never doubt that. Never doubt that. Never doubt that for yourself. Never doubt it for others. Always keep that in mind. Well, then sometime later, a great mature Christian named Barnabas connected with Paul, and he brought Paul to Antioch in Syria. And, two, uh, and the two met with the, the young church, and they taught great numbers of people there. And Acts 11.26 tells us that the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Not long after that, the, the first missionary journey of the way launched out from Antioch, and other missionary journeys followed after that one. How cool would that have been to be there for the first? To be the, the, the part of the first launchings? But why did the missions go there? missionaries go in the first, first case? Because Jesus told his people to go. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all I've commanded you. Also Acts 1.8 tells us that Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And that's how and that's why the Apostle Paul ended up in the very big city of Ephesus. We don't have time to make a map out of that and draw it. But he was in the big city of of Ephesus, far away from his home. And Paul, after meeting Jesus, was a changed man. From the Bible, we know that Paul had made three major journeys at some time between 45 A.D. and 58 A.D. And when he arrived at Ephesus, the big city of Ephesus, he stayed there for three years. So what did he do there? Did he just hang out? No, he right away went into ministry mode. And he took up opportunities to tell the gospel, the good news of Jesus. So that didn't take very long, did it? Well, from Acts chapter 1, we learn this, that right away, he met some disciples of John the Baptist, who had never learned about baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus. Also, they had never heard of the Holy Spirit. So Paul taught them 
about both the Holy Spirit and about baptism, and then he baptized them, just like it happened here. Very likely those disciples taught and baptized others wherever they went. Verse 8 tells us that Paul also went to the local synagogue and he, he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing, it says there in the NIV version. Just take that to be debating, maybe with a lot of interest. He was arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, but some of them became obstinate and publicly maligned the way. Maligned, just they trash-talked him. They maligned the way, the fellowship of believers. But Paul was tenacious, always tenacious. And instead of giving up, he either borrowed or rented a lecture hall in Ephesus. And he held discussions there daily for two years. Acts uh, 19.10 says that the result of that was all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Really? All the Jews and Greeks? Do you think that? You know, the scripture says that because Paul and company most likely reached out to every single one they could. That was amazing, but of course, when the gospel is proclaimed, there's always opposition to the ministry of Jesus Christ and his people. And that was the case in Ephesus while Paul was there. But God takes care of his people and his ministry. And at that time, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, healing the sick, countering the attacks of the evil spirits. And as a result, many who had participated in satanic practices in Ephesus, they gave up participating in those demonic activities. Pushing along a little faster, Luke writes, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought out their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Not forced, that was their decision. And it says, when they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was a, a silver coin representing a day's wage. Acts 19, 18 to 20 says, In this way the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The ESV transit, uh, translated it and says, The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Nothing could beat it. That is, the preaching and teaching of the word was so very effective that lives were being changed. Luke then tells us in Acts 19.21, after all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. No explanation or information from Scripture about that is given to us, except that it seems that Paul took an unusual, circuitous route. What exactly he was doing, we just don't know. We don't have that information. Was he taking a break? Very not likely. Paul didn't take very many vacations. Well, there's no evidence of, uh, of uh, Paul hanging out, but we do know that he was hoping to receive an offering from Christians in Greece that was meant for the very poor, the poor Christians that were living in poverty in Judea. So most likely, Paul was involved in all that. He was almost always a man on a, on a mission. It's too bad we don't have a big board and we could just track him all across there. It would be amazing to see the tracks he made through that area. But we also know from Acts 21 that Paul decided to go to Jerusalem by way of Macedonia and Achaia, very likely visiting believers all the way. But 
Paul also had something more, something bigger in mind. In Acts 19.21, we read that Paul said, I must visit Rome also. I must visit Rome also. Paul really wanted to go to Rome. But not for sightseeing, but for ministry purposes. And perhaps for planning, considering how and what was going on there and what could be done to help. But first, Paul had to deal with an unexpected problem in Ephesus. As we look in the book of Acts, as we've been studying, we see the scripture tells us he had been so effective at leading people to faith in Christ that the makers of silver shrines and household idols were losing business. And they stirred up the citizens there so much that a riot ensued. And Paul wanted to go right into it to try to stop it. Of course, his friends there had to hold him back. Thankfully, before he got into too deep a trouble there, the officials of the city took charge and they put down the riot. But it just seems that when Paul was in town, there was rarely a dull moment. But was that because Paul was just a screwball? You know, some people have thought, Paul was just kind of a crazy guy. A wacky guy who didn't, do think, uh, didn't think before he acted. But absolutely, absolutely not. Paul was a learned man with an extremely sharp mind and a huge amount of intelligence and common sense. So why was he so often in trouble or in places of trouble? Why was he so often in trouble and in places of trouble? You know the answer that is? He was obeying orders from Jesus Christ who said, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus said, go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Matthew 28, 19. Paul took that seriously, as all believers should. And sometimes that got him into trouble with others, as sometimes believers do. But Paul wasn't lacking in smarts, as some believe. Paul knew the dangers of Christian outreach, and he attempted to avoid those dangers as much as possible. He was quick to take up an opportunity for ministry. But the one thing that we really notice in this portion of Scripture was that that Paul planned as much as he was able to plan. He planned as much as he was able to plan. Paul was not just shooting off here and there and everywhere. Paul was a planner. Paul was someone who said, this is so worthy to do that we're going to do it the right way. We're going to plan it. And when we read on, uh, as we condense this, and we read on, we we see that he seized worthwhile opportunities when they came his way. Do we do that? Do we seize worthwhile opportunities when they came his way? I know in this church it does. And he made good of them. He made good of them, those opportunities. As we read on, we read that he pursued those goals. Paul set goals for Jesus Christ. Paul was tenacious about serving the Lord and bringing people to faith in Christ. So we're not surprised when we see in in Acts 19.21 where we read that Paul said, I must visit Rome also. Why there? Well, he, he wasn't planning to go for that sightseeing there. Rather, his desire was to minister and probably plan there in that large, important city. But in the book of Romans, uh, chapter 15, verses 24 and 28, even at that time, Paul was thinking going beyond Rome. 
He couldn't help it. He couldn't help it. It was so important to do exactly what Jesus said. Go make disciples. Go make disciples. There he was, planning, but in that large, planning for, for what he might be able to do in a large, important city. But in the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 24 and 28, we read that even at that time, Paul was thinking about, about going beyond Rome. Can you picture this? I mean, Paul has gone so many places, does so many things, but he just can't stop because God told him to do that. And he tells us to, to do as, as much as we can. Paul was thinking about going beyond Rome. He was, guess what he was thinking about? If you ever have a map of the Mediterranean and you don't have it today in your head, just understand this. Paul was thinking about going beyond Rome. But he was also at the same time thinking about Spain. Which means he went all the way from this side of the Mediterranean to here. And remember, there's, there's no jets, there's no powered ships. He made his way all the way to Rome. And when he got there, what he said was, he was going to go to the most westerly outpost of Roman civilization in Europe at that time. That was his, his desire. He was already contemplating and looking ahead beyond to the next missionary field. How many of us even think about the first one? Or the second one or the third? Paul was just continually moving on. And should we be doing that? Yeah, we should be involved in that if, at least. We have to be wise for success. We should dream. As the great Christian teacher, author, preacher, John Stott said of Paul, uh, about the Apostle Paul, he said, Paul's vision had no limits. Paul's vision had no limits. I don't know about you, but I've been in some places where, where people said, no, we can't do that. That's too hard. No, it's going to take too much time, too much money. We just can't do it. Sorry. That wasn't Paul. Paul's vision had no limits. Do we? Seriously, do we? More than anything else, what are we ourselves living for? Have we figured that out? Some of us are dreamers, but we have to be cautious in time. But more than anything else, what are we ourselves living for? Have we figured that? Have each of us really thought about that and come to a conclusion? Or are we living for ourselves only? And does that show in our lifestyle? Does it show in our time? Does it show in our talent, our treasure? You know, as a congregation, what are we living for more than anything else? Really, let me just say that again. As a congregation, what are we living for more than anything else? We do a very good number of things as a congregation, but it's very easy for any congregation to slip into ruts and become more focused on ourselves much more than we should. And this little portion of, of, of Acts tells us we need to continually think about us together, about who we are and what God has called us to do in this area and this region and elsewhere. Some of us, of course, are already doing that. That's great. But as individuals, what are we living for more than anything else? You know, we need to frequently take inventory on and of ourselves. Have you done any of that lately? We need to frequently take inventory on and of ourselves and adjust as needed if we're out of sync. The truth is that we all want a meaningful life, don't we? Paul wanted it. 
So did all the disciples of Jesus. You know, even Judas wanted that. Judas, Judas wanted a meaningful life. He just didn't know how to go about it, or at least he didn't want to take those hard steps. Well, the most meaningful life comes from a real relationship with Jesus, which Judas actually never had. Paul wanted a life that really mattered, and he got it. And so can all who come to Jesus at any time. But only if we want him more than anything else, and only if we serve him more than anyone else. Let me just say that again. Only if we want him more anything else, more than anything else, and only if we serve him more than anything else and anyone else. What and who are we as a people looking for? I believe Saul of Tarsus was a man without hope, which most likely was one reason why he became a despicable man. And I also believe that he wanted a life that really mattered. We all want a life that matters. But Saul, for a long time, never could find that life until a man from heaven named Jesus Christ, who loved him, knocked Saul to the ground. And sometimes, you know, we've gone through some hard times. We get knocked on the ground, too. And sometimes the Lord's in that very much because he loves us so much. Bob Dylan famously said in his poem and the song after, you can serve the devil or you can serve the Lord, but you got to serve somebody. And the point is, are we doing that? Are we serving? Are you willing to, to serve Jesus? That's the only way to get a life that truly matters. Lewis Carroll, who was, I think, uh, part of the... Um, what was Lewis Carroll... What was that? Allison in Wonderland, yeah. Lewis Carroll said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And in our personal lives and in our lives in the church, we need to know where we're going and what we're doing. And so it's important for us to get on the right road at all times. We need to check ourselves. Who or what are we living for, each one of us? More than anything, what are we living for? We need to look at that up. Is it sports? Is it hunting? Is it business? Is it whatever? More than anything else, what are we living for? It shows in our lifestyle. Jesus, Jesus promised those who would follow him only three things. Somebody said once time, one time. I don't have the, uh, the author here, but it says, Jesus promised those who would follow him only three things, that they would be absurdly happy, entirely fear- fearless, and always in trouble. It's good to stop and think about ourselves personally, and maybe as our, you know, think about as our church also. That's not such a bad life. It's scary at times, but it's worth it. Jesus promised those only three things, that we would be absurdly happy, entirely fearless, and always in trouble. If we're not reaching at least a couple of those things and not all of them, then we better do some checking into ourselves 
and making some adjustments. And so Paul would say, come along with us. And say to this to yourself today, just in a time of, uh, of prayer as we close quickly, what do you want more than anything else? What do you want more than anything else? Are there things that are maybe worthwhile but are going to be burned up, buried, whatever? Or are we going to be doing things that make such an impact on us and others? When you think back to uh, Disneyland, and you think back about, about all that was going on in that, in that wonderful time of just having a great time with family. What do you want more than anything else? What do we all want more than anything else?